Hey, it really is a huge, huge privilege uh, to get to be in this role and, and specifically to get to stand up here and preach God's word. A couple things I want to uh, set up our time with. One is, uh, is really, just to be clear, the validity and the authority with which uh, this sermon gets to be preached has nothing to do with how cute or pithy or how good we are or I am at marriage. I'm preaching to myself as much as anything. This is true uh, every time I get to preach, Cody gets to preach. It is true every time uh, someone stands at this pulpit. We stand on the authority of what God says is true. Uh, what God says is true and getting to unpack that and you get to run that through a filter, not of have they mastered it, uh, are they the experts, but we get to run it through the filter of is this God's way? And that gives us a ton of confidence. This morning, obviously, like Cody said, like we saw in the video, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about marriage in the Bible. I, I also hope and I think we've got a lot of really practical stuff that we're going to see in Scripture. If you are single, uh, if you are divorced, if you are widowed, uh, I think God's word, even as we stare at marriage, we're going to see all of those things. But also, um, my hope is in the midst of a sermon on marriage... Uh, I hope we leave here more than anything with a greater appreciation for who Jesus is, for who Jesus is and what he's done. And uh, that's really the goal of this sermon and, and really the goal of this pulpit uh, every Sunday. So uh, last week, as you heard, Cody uh, unpacked Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam on the scene and we see then Eve uh, shows up on the scene as this helper, this, this uh, incredible equal value, but very different roles, a partner to Adam. Uh, and, and we see also in Genesis 2.24, the origination of marriage, um, and, and which, is why, which is why I'm here, is why we're diving into the subject, is to slow down on, to, on this picture of marriage. And we see it happen there, right? You can't go any further back to the beginning uh, than Genesis 2.24 when it comes to marriage. It says, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me preview kind of what we're going to do in this sermon. Uh, I want to take us over to Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, Paul gives this incredible theological treatise about, about marriage, and he ties it directly to Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis 2, where we've been, uh, and then he unpacks a, a, a deeper version of, hey, that mystery that God created, this thing that he built, here's the roles, here's how it works. And so we're going to jump over there. I'm going to kind of unpack Ephesians 2 in two parts, one part to wives, and then the other part in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, uh, the other part of that is going to be to husbands and the command of the husbands. And then from that, uh, in the sermon, we're going to see three really clear uh, principles that arise from Ephesians 5 uh, that I think hopefully things we can walk out of here and apply to our life. Uh, let's jump over to Ephesians 5. If you want to start flipping there, and we'll put it up on the screen if that's easiest. As you're turning there, as you're turning there, I, I want to just have a little shepherding moment, one more before we jump into that passage. Um, and that's, I want to encourage everyone with this, with this truth. Um, it's clear throughout the Bible that marriage is important to God, that God cares about marriage, that's an important thing for him. We'll see that marriage uh, ha has distinct purposes that God has created it for. We'll see that doing marriage God's way is this blessing, ends up blessing the couple, blessing uh, the individual. Uh, I don't think many people who spend time in Scripture are going to debate that, but I'm also confident when I study Scripture that a happy marriage, a happy marriage is not the ultimate goal of our lives. Here's why I make that point. It's not lost on me that I'm, I'm 
getting the opportunity to preach this to an audience that, yes, many of you are married, but also people who are single and, and widowed and have divorce in their past or are in a really rocky and rough season even right now, uh, some who desire deeply to be married and some who are really content in their, in their singleness, and there's a wide range there. And so wherever you are in your relationship and your desire and even your experiences in marriage, um, I hope you find it encouraging that a happy marriage, that is not the ultimate goal and God's ultimate will for your life. We're going to spend time digging into marriage, looking at God's plan and his purpose, right, his processes in, in that. But God is not handicapped to work in your life if you're single. God's not in heaven wringing out his hands thinking, man, I really want to do this work in this person's life, but I just, I just can't because of their relationship status. God's sovereign plan for how he chooses to draw near to us and use us for his glory and his kingdom those, those things are not, are not stuck or limited in a filter of, well, you've got, you've got divorce in your past, or, oh, you've, you've got, you're single and you haven't found a wife. And so I, I just want, I want everyone in the flock, in the body of Christ, to be able to hear that and keep in context what God says is important, is important, that we value here, certainly. But also, uh, if, if you don't feel that, um, man, I hope you hear that if you are single or divorced or widowed, Brother and sister, you are, um, you are just as available for God to continue to work, right? You're not second class. You are, you are in the eyes of God, just as valuable and just as whole to God uh, as anyone. And, and God sees that, and this church also sees you and sees that same thing. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you might not feel other than or feel discouraged at times or feel disappointed uh, with unmet expectations all of those feelings are real, and all of those feelings are heavy. And we see you, and we, we, we hear that, and we want to walk with you and continue to do those things, not invalidating those feelings, but our hope is that as we look at Jesus and we look at his design, uh, that, that maybe today a little bit of those feelings of other than get to be dissipated just a little bit as you're reminded by the Spirit of God that those are lies telling you that you're less than or, or missing something uh, if that is an attack. So I don't know who needed to hear that, um, but I felt like I needed to share it. Um, here, here we go. Um, we need more of him. That's what this is about. Let's get after it. Ephesians 5. Uh, remember, it's this direct cross-reference to this original passage in Genesis 2. Paul's going to show us how a marriage unit is designed to fit together. All right? And first, he's going to look at the wife, right? The wife's role in marriage. Verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, Paul says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, we'll stop right there. Paul's pretty clear. We see a pretty clear uh, design and command in, in marriage that the wife is to submit to her own husband. This is a clear command from God's word. I love God's word. We can trust God's word. Here's what I don't love. I don't love people who mishandle God's word, right? I don't love people who use God's word inappropriately, right? Who take God's word 
uh, out of context and ignorantly and use it in abusive ways towards other people. And people have used, historically, there are people who have used these three verses in Ephesians 5 to subjugate women, to promote some sort of, of immature chauvinism that isn't biblical in any way. Uh, people have taken God's just deep and, and edifying word, right? And they've used it to prop up their own insecure masculinity, right? Throughout our history, there are enough anecdotal stories of that uh, that have seeped into to people who have preached this or just held on to it or just taken these verses uh, to use as a battering ram. Um, and because of that history and because of that baggage um, and because people have poorly applied this term, then this term submit has in a lot of ways, to some people in our culture and to some of us, it's become a bad word, right? This idea of submit, it's become kind of this bad, like, oh, yeah, that's not popular. That doesn't, that doesn't look good. Um, we, don't, we don't apologize for God's word. We, we don't. We don't have to apologize. There's no part of us that, that feels that. We also don't need to omit or rewrite God's word because we might feel there's people in our culture that might misunderstand or it might make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, we don't have to do that. But what we should do is when we see a, a, a culture, we see people take what God has designed, take what God has declared, and hijack it and start to define it in a way that God does not define it, well, what we should do is we take it back, right? That is what we do. We take it back. And submission is actually a beautiful and a godly thing. It's a beautiful and godly thing. It's one of the most Christ-like attributes uh, a person can have. It's a mark of literally every single follower of Jesus, uh, no matter what your, your gender is. Uh, it's the source. I mean, submission is literally the source of our maturity as believers. Right? My maturity as a Christian is, is not about my independence and my autonomy. Right? My maturity as a believer is driven and based and built on a foundation of actually how well do I submit? How well do I submit to the Lord? Do I, do I trust him? Do I submit to the people that he's put in leadership? That's a mark of maturity. And women, wives specifically, wives is what it talks about, are called to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. This is a call for wives to fulfill part of the mystery of this thing that God has designed to point people to the gospel, right? Wives get to be a part of this gospel-proclaiming, God-designed and God-engineered thing when they submit their hearts and their lives to their Christ-following husbands, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's a celebrated thing. It's a mature and deep thing. And Paul's going to show us the allegory here in Ephesians 5 that marriage is designed to be and he's going to show us that the wife's role in that marriage actually synchronizes to our role as the church, right? That that's what synchronizes. That's what gets to be a picture of all of the body of Christ. If you are in Christ, that's the role for all Christians in the body of Christ. The people who do the, the spiritual submission to the Lord well, we esteem those people, right? The world, an insecure world might see submission as weakness, right, or in, in inferiority, but a secure Christian sees it as a mark of a mature Christian. Uh, an example, when Christ Chapel is evaluating elders um, to be on the elder board here at this church, uh, they are looking and evaluating through the lens of, man, what is their depth of submission? 
What does their submission to Christ to others look like? Uh, that's actually what, what they're looking for in elders and in leadership. Submission is not a bad word. Right? It's a beautiful command that all Christians, male and female, should see as a sign of maturity. It doesn't mean less valuable. It doesn't mean less adequate, less worthy. Submission is, submission is strength that's laid down in honor of God and his will and his design. Right? Jesus, I mean, is our, is our mic drop example. Right? Jesus submitted. Right? It's not weakness. It's the opposite of weakness. Jesus could have hopped off that cross He could have hopped off that cross and flexed his power and the earth would have quaked and every every Jewish accuser and Roman soldier would have been vanquished. Jesus could have done that and yet he submitted his power to the Father in that moment and praise God he did. And wives are asked and they're designed within the marriage to echo that command. To echo that command in the picture of marriage it paints of the gospel. It's a noble, dignifying thing. So let's look at the second the second part of Ephesians 5. We see this, this role, this, this complement of, okay, submission, wives submitting to their husbands. Let's look at the husband's role. Pick, with me, pick up with me on verse 25, and we'll go all the way through 33 here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a direct quote pulled from Genesis 2, what we studied last week. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. The mystery we saw last week in Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, and Paul is saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Man, this should put in context, this should put in context who the wife is called to submit to, right? I mean, wives submit to their husbands, but the husband's role in that, as as wives submit to their husbands, the husband's role in this marriage, God-designed marriage, is to love their wives the way Christ loved the church, verse 25. And how did Christ love the church? He laid his life down for the church, to a church that had abandoned him and betrayed him He took the short end of the stick and laid his life down for the church, right? It puts in perspective a wife who's submitting to a husband who is laying his life down for her. I've heard it said by a a wife in a godly marriage that it's it's a joy to submit to a man who is laying his life constantly down for you. And simultaneously for a man to be quick to sacrifice for a wife who is, who is expressing uh, such respect for her husband. It's this beautiful oneness that, that marriage creates, that marriage creates as this picture of the gospel. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. Paul explains in Ephesians 5 that that dynamic of God's design for marriage, it's designed to show the world that gospel. Right? Verse 31 Remember, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be flesh. And then it said in verse 32, the mystery is profound. He is saying that it refers to Christ in the church. The biblical marriage 
is a, is a testament to look what God has done and look how this gospel of grace works. Great. Great. Biblical Christian marriage is a witness of Jesus, of, of Christ to a lost world. It's this sanctifying dance of mutual respect and it's, it's sanctifying and, and desiring to honor God at every turn. But I argue with my wife about guacamole, right? So what happened? What happens between the, the theological picture in Ephesians 5 of what God has designed this to be, and then all of a sudden I take it into my kitchen and I can't make guacamole with Danielle, right? What, what's happened, right? Where did this go wrong? How does this go wrong? How do we hit these speed bumps? Where do they come from and how do we navigate? How do we take this theology of marriage and actually apply it. I want to show you three biblical principles that come right out of Ephesians 5. Uh, I, think, I think these principles um, really are foundational, um, not only for marriage, but, but even to help us uh, apply it as we leave here. The first principle really answers the question, what is biblical ma- marriage real practically? It's this theological, beautiful picture of the gospel and, and how these two people in oneness are, are laying their lives down for each other, but, but really biblical marriage is a it's a promise with no ifs. Right? Definitionally, biblical marriage, we're called, we're designed and available to have is a, is a promise. It's a commitment, but it's a promise with no ifs. And it shouldn't be a surprise, I would think, that marriage is based on a commitment, right? But our world would say that commitment is a contract, right? The world would say, well, yes, two, two people are entering into this this contract together. However, if we've been paying attention, you saw in those passages, that is not the language of a contract. In Ephesians 5, that's not contract language. That's one person laying their life down, the other person submitting, right? It's, it's that. The language of a contract would, would prioritize you look out for you, right? The, the whole nature of a contract is there to protect you. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, and you're going to do what you say you're going to do, and as long as you do your thing and I do my thing and we, we keep up our ends of the bargain, uh, well, then, then great. But if you don't keep up your end, well, then the contract is void. That's the nature of them. Um, biblical marriage is a promise. It doesn't have an exit clause. And it's fundamental to the beauty in how a biblical marriage works. It's a promise with no ifs. It's not a, it's not a I will love you and submit to you if if you do this and that. It's, it's not a, I'll love you and I'll sacrifice you. If you do your part, then yes, I will, I will do that. It's a, it's a covenant, not a contract. And, and there's a lot we could say about covenant, but we see, uh, we see God step into a covenant with his people in the Old Testament. And, and if I'm to summarize that concept of covenant, it's that it's not a 50-50. It's a, God said, this covenant is based on my faithfulness. It's like, it would be like you go to a bank and you say, hey, I I need to take out a loan. And they say, yeah, okay, great. You, you are. You do need to take out a loan. But you're going to need to put down a lot of collateral. Oh, wait, though. Hey, Doug, he works at the bank. Doug, use our money and, and you pay. You pay for the collateral. And then you're going to have monthly payments. Go ahead and set those monthly payments to withdraw out of our bank account here at the bank. Right? You, you think, what? A covenant is, is based on God's faithfulness. He says, it's, it's 100% me. It's It's not based on you and you're going to come up short. It's based on God and praise God for that because he is faithful. And so that's this idea of covenant in the Old Testament. Um, And and that applies to marriage. Shifts our perspective, doesn't it? It should. 
should shift our perspective. It changes everything, right? It changes how we see our commitment to our spouse or our potential spouse for those who are not yet in this covenant, right? You're marrying a person, not a portrait. They're going to change. They're going to change. They're, they're going to disappoint you. They're, they're going to emotionally hurt you, right? And, and very possibly and probably uh, your spouse is going to have more hurt and, and be responsible for more emotional hurt because it's the most vulnerable relationship you'll ever be in. And so those things are going to happen all throughout. Somebody's going to let the other person down. And yet in light of all those realities uh, you know, about the person you're marrying, those are valid things, if you're married, you have to throw away the scorecard. Right? You throw it away because it no longer applies. Right now, if you're dating, then yeah, you should probably have an appropriate scorecard to evaluate, okay, well, is this, is this that person? I'll talk a little bit to, to those brothers and sisters here in a second, but, but outside of that, once you're married, the scorecard gets shredded. Right? How is she holding up her end of the bargain? How is she matching the expectations I had in getting married? Right? How is she holding up her end of the commitment physically and emotionally and compatibility and chemistry and passion and fun? Right, in connection, how is she doing that? Or how is he holding up those, those pre, that premarital trajectory of, of your guy? And man, it looked like it was heading, and how, how is that still heading the same trajectory that you thought you signed up for? The scorecards of that evaluation as a, as a deal breaker, that, that gets shredded. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.19, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, this is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let me read that one more time. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In Christ, my trespasses aren't counted against me. Your trespasses aren't counted. The way you come up short isn't counted against you in Christ. In marriage, remember, we see it is set, designed to reflect the gospel, right? We, we don't hold their trespasses against each other in that transactional way that seems so natural. The commitment is not if you keep your end, it's unconditional. Um, the, the second thing I, I want to say here under this application and, and to get hopefully real practical um, is if you're in this room and you have been, uh, if you've experienced divorce, Right, or you've been close to someone, or you've, you've experienced it as a part of your past, it's a part of your story, or a family member, or a son, or a grandson, or, or, or a parent, right? And, and you have seen how that, what was well intended to be a covenant, quickly became a contract, it became really lopsided, and just strangled a relationship. Uh, this is an application point, hear me, this is not an application point to, to, to layer any kind of misplaced ungodly shame on you. That's not from the Lord, right? If you hear, yeah, man, it's supposed to be all in. There's no scorecard, but you say, well, but, but my past, I've already been effective. I've already seen it. I've already experienced that disappointment. There's no shame in that, and I don't know your story. Christ does, and Christ knows your story, and, and Christ loves us, all of us, despite ourselves. That's the power of his grace, and the decisions that we make or other people make that shape the experiences in our life. If you're in Christ, those are covered by the grace of Jesus. I don't know who needs to be reminded of that truth today as we talk about unconditional love, um, but, 
But that is covered by the grace of Jesus. And the story of Scripture from Genesis 3 on through the rest of it is a bunch of people who are given the tracks of this is my way. And it's a story of people veering off those tracks left and right and a heavenly father who goes and pulls them off of the tracks and off out of the weeds and redeems and restores and uses them and their story for his glory. If divorce is a part of your story or your parents or your, your kids or your grandkids and you feel like, like you've been affected by a failure in that area, right, that God intended it to be this, this thing, that failure doesn't disqualify you or those you love from more of Jesus. That's just not a thing. Our failures are the very reason Jesus came and died. Um, and let's remember what testimonies we have that we would boast in our testimonies because uh, our testimonies are beautiful not because our track records are perfect and without blemish, but they're beautiful because I can boast that God's grace and his power, despite me, despite our stories, whatever that may be. So remember that truth and battle those lies. The second principle, second principle I want to hit here is that biblical marriage is love rooted in sacrifice. And this is huge, Right? Biblical marriage definitionally is this unconditional covenant, right? It's no, there's no ifs to it. And, and I would say, this illustration might break down, but think of a tree, right? The seed of marriage is that idea of unconditional covenant relationship, right? And that's the very DNA of everything that will grow out of a marriage has got to be built on that DNA of, man, this is all in. This is, this is uh, no ifs, no exit clauses, unconditional. But the roots of that tree, what actually make a tree grow, the depth of the roots, that's are we loving sacrificially, Right? Foundationally, that, that covenant's important, but if your marriage is going to grow and flourish, the difference between an oak tree that is experiencing all that its creator designed it to experience or a tree that's just barely hanging on, right? Just struggling to just hang on and, and produce any kind of fruit, the difference is the roots, what's under the soil. And those roots are directly tied to this idea. How we do this is we love sacrificially. That's how your roots grow. That's how you deepen. That's how you flourish in your marriage. That is the day-to-day -day of what it looks like, right? Biblical love at its roots, right? The world would say they are looking for love, absolutely. Every reality TV show is looking for love, defining it for us, giving their suggestions. But they're looking for it, a definition based on feelings or emotions or chemistry or compatibility, Biblical marriage isn't that. Biblical marriage is love rooted and defined by sacrifice. Right? Again, this idea of love has been hijacked, so we take it back. We say, no, no, no. We know what love is. Scripture tells us what love is. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Biblical love is defined by selfless sacrifice. That's what, that's what should be at the root. That's what is going to make a, a marriage flourish the way it's designed to, its, its potential to do that. What's that look like in a marriage? It's two imperfect people attempting to serve and sacrifice for each other, not keeping score, right, but looking to put the other's needs before themselves in comfort, in finances, in physical intimacy, in serving, in calling, right? In a biblical marriage, in a biblical marriage, a spouse trades the question, what's in it for me? 
they take that in a biblical marriage and they trade that question for, how can I bless my spouse? That's what, that's what biblical love does. That's what sacrificial love does. How can I take this question that is inherent within all of us, what's in it for me, how, how can I get what I need to, how can I serve, and how can I lay down my life for this other person? And that question is going to grow our roots deeper and deeper, how we answer that. And this principle, again, should, I mean, it should shift our perspective, right? These should be perspective-shifting things. If you've heard this and read this and studied this a hundred times, our default setting is we drift away from it and we're reminded by God's word and his spirit to drift back. It shifts our perspective for those, even for those not married, for those not married right now, if, if you're single, if you're dating and you're trying to evaluate and you're trying to determine if you got the right girl, the right guy for this long-term commitment, right? This principle changes the lens in which you look through, right? Right? As you counsel other people who are trying to evaluate and you're trying to give wise counsel to figure out, is this the right person? And they're asking you, wherever that is, the primary questions that you're then looking through in that evaluation are no longer, does this person make me feel good? As the primary question, do they, do they match up enough with the compatibility, right? Do they make me feel fluttery inside, if that's a thing, right? Those are all inadequate questions to find the answer you need because biblically, love is not an abstract vibe that I might stumble in and stumble out of. The question instead, the question instead that you're looking through if you're single or you're counseling uh, friends or family members that, that you're walking with, the question instead is, would it be my joy to lay down my life for this person? That's a much more adequate question to evaluate, am I ready to step into this? Is this a person that I say, it would be my joy to be a picture of Jesus to this man or to this woman? Man, this is a daughter of the king, a son of the king, and man, I want to live a life being a, a picture of Christ, an earthly picture of Christ in my flawed self, doing my best to, to push this person towards Jesus. That's a much better question that's going to get you a much better result in that evaluation, right? And for those who are married, Right? For, for us who are married in this room, um, it, it's time to throw away the fairness scale. Right? That, that fairness scale of, oh, I'm going to do good things. I'm going to serve my wife, and I'm going to do these things, or my husband. But, man, the scales are getting kind of pretty lopsided, and I'm doing a lot more than she is or than he is. And, and all of a sudden, that fairness scale starts to creep into our hearts. And, and again, if, if our love is a sacrificial love, then we've we got to throw out that scale. I have to take my, my fairness, desire for fairness, and my entitlement to that, and i got to trade it for selfishness, selflessness and sacrifice. And that's not easy. It's not easy because I got sin. That's why that's not easy. I got sin. I'm a sinner. And my default setting is actually to just to be about me, right? That's my default setting. And so that's if you're a sinner... If you are a sinner, then that's your drift too, which brings me to this really practical and really freeing third biblical principle. Um, man, uh, it's this idea, um, it's this idea of the greatest problem with my marriage is my sin. Um, and, and I, and I want to end this second principle with that challenge. The greatest problem with my marriage, that perspective that reality, the greatest problem with my marriage is my sin. And let me tell you why that's so freeing to apply to me as I'm trying to love sacrificially. Here's why it's freeing. Because couples can get paralyzed pointing at the other person's sin, right? We see their sin and we say, okay, we're supposed to biblically, we're supposed to love 
sacrificially, but they, and you don't even know, and this, and if you would just, and we get paralyzed because we see their sin so much easier than we see our sin. But if we can take this truth that the greatest problem in my marriage is my sin, right? Well, you know what I can work on? I can work on my own heart, and I can't control their sin. That's, that's sin for me to try to control their sin. But I can work on my heart, and I can focus on that. And if both people in a marriage are identifying, hey, the greatest problem is let me focus on myself, then, man, that, that sets us free to break through some of those stalemate paralysis times in marriage where we're just pointing at the other person's sin. Man, those roots are going to grow Roots are going to grow. And, and here's the last thing. Here's, here's the last principle. And I, I think, honestly, the most important, the most important uh, thing and most important principle, it's how do I keep this up, right? These first two principles are clear in Ephesians, and they're rich if I apply them. But I'm going to be honest, right? This idea of throw away my scorecard and serve and love sacrificially and lay my life down and be completely selfless and reject any entitlement and bitterness. Great. Those are awesome applications, those are impossible in and of myself, right? You are inadequate. I am inadequate to love my spouse the way I am designed to to love her. I am inadequate in and of myself, in my own flesh, in my own ability, in my my own strength. I am inadequate to love Danielle the way I'm actually called to. The biblical oneness that God designed for marriages will not last if I try to do it in my strength, if you try to do it in your strength. Here's why this is not going to be the most depressing sermon landing you've ever heard. Because I don't have to. Because I don't have to do it in my strength. Because of the gospel. Because biblical marriage is a oneness that is sustained by the Spirit of God. Let me say that again. A final principle. The sustaining power in my marriage is not my grit. But instead, biblical marriage is this oneness, it's this connection, it's this unity, and it is sustained by the Spirit of God. My job, right, or even my ability is not to grip my teeth. That's not my job. Uh, grip my teeth and, and be a good enough husband, right? My job, my ability um, is to surrender to the Spirit of God. That's my primary role if I want to be the husband that I'm designed to be. But that's my primary role, is to submit myself to the Spirit of God and have him transform my heart and have him sustain the heart that it takes when I consistently drift. John 15, 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before he's arrested. And John 15 is this beautiful section. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches to his followers. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the vine. He's the vine who will produce in me the love I'm supposed to show. The, the patience that I'm called to exude, that honestly, when I get squeezed, a lot of times doesn't come out. He is the vine. And my role is to connect to that, to stay connected to that. And you could do a whole mini-series on, on what it looks like in the disciplines of all of the different ways that God, being in biblical community, being in accountability, being in scripture, uh, walking in confession and prayer and meeting with the Lord, all of these disciplines that help me say, that has got to be my source. 
I can't do this on my own. I can't muster up all the strength to put these things into practice. It worked for a little bit. I, I, you know, I, I do good for a while and I drift. Man, our role is to abide. That's what sustains that unity in a marriage. Um, and it's this beautiful thing. The greatest application point for me and for you as a spouse is to get closer to God. Get closer to God. And if you're hearing this, listen, if you're hearing this and you're realizing, um, if you're hearing this and you're realizing, I don't know what that version of Christianity looks like. I have always worked hard at my faith. My walk with God has always been something that I have strived and I I control it. What are you talking about? I can, if you've been trying to be adequate in and of yourself, marriage or not marriage, here today, you cannot do it. That is the gospel. Marriage is just a picture of that. That's the gospel. Stop trying to Find your own adequacy. Salvation based on faith in Jesus. His grace based on our faith in Christ. That's what saves us. By grace, through faith. Gospel is not just the door of our salvation. It's not a thing that we we did and we got baptized and we celebrated and it was sealed. It's also the source for my marriage to reflect him. Love your spouse the way Christ loves you. Love your spouse the way Christ loves you. To do that, you got to know how much he loves you. you got to sit closely to him. And when your marriage is struggling or relationships are hard, then you know you've got to run back to the source and let your love and your grace and your patience be an overflow of the one who said, I love you no matter what. Let me pray for us. Father, would, um, would the fruit of our Marriages of our relationship, God, would it be an overflow from our depth and understanding of how you've loved us? The gospel of Jesus, the, the truth that 2,000 years ago you sent your son perfect, fully adequate to be in your presence, who submitted, who hung on that cross when he didn't have to, so that those who stopped trying and surrender could be yours. God, would the truth of that gospel penetrate our marriages? We need that. We desperately need that. There's nothing that reveals our sin and our selfishness like marriage. So what, a, what an opportunity to sanctify us. What an opportunity to bring us back to the dependence that is so sweet when we abide in you. Father, be glorified. Do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus, amen.